Hello and welcome to another episode of The Old Lighthouse, casting a historical light on current affairs. I'm Hallam and I'm joined by Hannah and Alex, and today we'll be looking at the origins of Islamic State. Last December, The Guardian reported that the number of UK terrorism arrests hit a record high, an increase of 54% to 400 in a year to the September of 2017, reflecting a growing threat from Islamist terrorism in Britain. This dramatic upshift can in part be explained by the fall of Islamic State, or ISIS. As IS has been almost completely stamped out, it was expected that there would be a rise in both attempted and successful spectacular terrorist attacks abroad, including here in the UK. But though ISIS may be, tentatively, on its way out, many people still aren't exactly sure where they even came from in the first place and how they managed to achieve so much power and gain so much territory. This is what I'll be talking about in this episode. Where did Islamic State come from? We should start with a brief mention of the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979 when a Western-backed regime is overthrown and an Islamic Republic is declared. We don't need to dwell on this, but it's an important moment in the conceptualization of what an Islamic State might look like and a model of what Islamists around the world tried and are trying to achieve. But to understand ISIS, we must also first get an understanding of Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia. This has a long history that we can't go into here, but basically the ethos of 18th century Wahhabism, that is Saudi Arabia's dominant faith, which is an austere form of Islam that insists on a literal interpretation of the Quran and argues that those that don't believe in their form of Islam are Islam's enemies, this roared back into life when the Ottoman Empire collapsed during World War I. The Al Saud, this is Saudi Arabia's ruling family, in this Wahhabist revival were led by Abdul Aziz, who relaunched the Saudi Ikhwan, a reincarnation of an early 20th century fierce, semi-independent vanguard movement of committed Wahhabist moralists. However, Aziz later found his interest threatened by the revolutionary Ikhwan and a civil war broke out in the 1930s, and Aziz eventually has the Ikhwan executed. But the Saudi Ikhwan approach to Islam did not fade away in the 1930s. It did retreat, but it maintained hold over parts of the system. ISIS can essentially be seen as a corrective movement to contemporary Wahhabism, Salafists, Salafism is a reform movement within Sunni Islam that can trace its roots back to earlier Wahhabism, believe that over time Muslims have introduced practices and innovations that have corrupted Islam, and to rectify this they advocate a strict return to the fundamentals of the religion. The next big event we need to go to is in 1979 when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan to keep a puppet dictator in place against rebels. Young men from around the world flocked in to join and many saw this as a religious struggle, with some developing extremist views. Amongst them was a young, well-educated Saudi named Osama bin Laden who found the group Al-Qaeda and a Jordanian Salafist jihadist Abu Musab al-Zarqari. These two did not get along. The US and other regional powers promoted hardline political Islam as a counterweight to secular forces. The US even funded Islamic guerrillas as a way to topple the Moscow-backed regime in Kabul, even funding the production of children's textbooks that glorified jihad and martyrdom. Eventually the Soviets withdrew in 1989 and the foreign fighters went home. The underlying religious justification for Arab participation in the war had been constructed by Abdullah Azam. Azam described Afghanistan as merely one front in a larger war against Muslims in which fighting was necessary so that unbelievers do not dominate. So withdrawal of the Red Army in Afghanistan did not result in the demobilization of the Mujahideen or the Holy Warriors for Islam. Salafi jihadis argued that despite the liberation of Afghanistan from the Soviet Union, War in defence of Islam still remained an obligation, since Muslim populations remained oppressed by unbelievers throughout the globe. Azam's original call to defend the Muslim community in Afghanistan was adopted to extend the jihad indefinitely. This created a vast international network of Salafi jihadis for future groups to draw on. 
Historian Thomas Hegham's argument is that this new foreign fighter phenomenon that arose represented a violent offshoot of a qualitatively new subcurrent of Islamism, what he called populist pan-Islamism, which emerged in the 1970s. His articles on this subject delve into the roots of this new subcurrent more deeply than can be done here and are well worth reading. Now after Afghanistan, back in Saudi Arabia, Bin Laden grew Al-Qaeda into a global network to continue the struggle against Islam's enemies. Al-Zarqari also formed his own group, but it fizzled out. Both men later returned to Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, and 9-11 in 2001 is orchestrated from a base there. The US then invaded Afghanistan, and Bin Laden fled to Pakistan, while Al-Zarqari fled to a corner of Iraq. Two years later, the US toppled Saddam Hussein in Iraq and disbanded the Iraqi army, with thousands of unemployed sunny Iraqi soldiers joining a sunny insurgency. Sunni jihadist groups saw this as a repeat of the Soviets in Afghanistan and again flocked into fights, with al-Zarqari amongst them. His group now becomes Iraq's most ruthless and sparks a Sunni-Shia civil war. By 2004, al-Qaeda, which had been weakened over time, was trying to bolster its image by forming an alliance with al-Zarqari's group, which became al-Qaeda in Iraq. Al-Qaeda in Iraq's aim was to remove Western occupation and replace it with a Sunni Islamic regime. In 2006, Iraqi Sunnis rose up against al-Zarqari and he's killed in a US airstrike. Al-Qaeda in Iraq is largely defeated after US troop surge and the US finally withdraw in 2011. Also in 2011, however, the Arab Spring takes place across the Middle East. In Syria, Bashar al-Assad started a violent crackdown on protesters who fired back and a civil war began in August of that year. Assad was worried about global intervention against him and he released many jihadists from prison to tinge the rebel groups and prevent external forces supporting them. In Iraq, the diminished Al-Qaeda in Iraq became known as Islamic State in Iraq, but is still Al-Qaeda affiliated and were now being led by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who had been made leader in 2010 and who replenished the group's leadership. In 2012, al-Baghdadi sends some men over to Syria to start a new Al-Qaeda branch to fight with the rebels. This is Jabhat al-Nusra or the al-Nusra Front. He also frees former jihadists, recruits new ones, and the group grows stronger. In April 2013, al-Baghdadi announced he's taking control of all al-Qaeda allied forces in Syria and Iraq and merging the groups into one, and his group expanded into Syria, becoming the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS, or ISIL, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. Al-Qaeda, however, rejected this power grab, and in 2014 they formally exiled him, so ISIS and Al-Qaeda were now actually at war. ISIS, however, grew powerful in Syria, and Assad tolerated its rise because it divided his enemies and distracted foreign powers from him. In June 2014, ISIS launched an invasion into Iraq, overcoming the Iraqi army without much fuss, and within days it controlled a third of Iraq and a big chunk of Syria. It also proclaimed itself a worldwide caliphate and renamed itself Islamic State, claiming authority over all Muslims worldwide. And so that, in an extremely brief and oversimplified nutshell perhaps, is where Islamic State came from in the first place. Is there any questions, guys? Yeah, I'm just interested um, whether really Islamic State's kind or like brand of terrorism, uh, do you think it's new in any sense, given the really long history of terrorism that we're all aware of? Well, this is actually a debate amongst historians and historians of terrorism now, Religious terrorism of this kind, of Islamic State's or Al-Qaeda's brand, is sometimes called the new terrorism. And those that call it this argue that there's something qualitatively new about this kind of terrorism. And those who don't take this viewpoint highlight the fact that many of Al-Qaeda or Islamic State's methods and tactics are used by other groups throughout history. 
Now, to take an example, Islamic terrorist groups often use propaganda by the deed, that's using spectacular public attacks that raise awareness of a group, and also it provokes a response that will in turn help recruit for the terrorist group. And this was a tactic actually used by anarchist groups at the start of the 20th century and the late 19th century. So in many ways, an understanding of the history of terrorism helps us to understand more recent religious terrorism and the methods and tactics that they're using. But having said this, there certainly are many elements of this kind of terrorism which is definitely new. These terrorists now seem to be more brutal, they're driven by theological goals that seem to leave little room for compromise, and this seems to be something quite different that we haven't encountered before. And so in these ways, uh, this kind of terrorism requires a, a new kind of response. And so if you're interested in reading anything uh, more about this subject, Peter Coburn's The Rise of Islamic State is a really great accessible account of the historical roots of ISIS. If you want a more detailed article, Quinton Wiktorovich's article, The Genealogy of Radical Islam, uh, provides a fascinating insight into the evolution of jihadi thought over time. That's all from us. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to download PDF transcripts of this episode complete with references and citations, you can do by going to our podcast homepage. And see you next time.